This is Radio Tabule, a podcast about the Middle East and North Africa. Fresh content and conversations around Swana arts, culture, and freedom of expression, produced by the editors of the Marcaz Review. And you're listening to an early episode of Radio Tabouli. We're recording here in Montpellier, south of France. And this is um, our opportunity to get to know you and for you to get to know us. This is our who's who. We're going to have our editors introduce themselves, and we're going to have a conversation about the Marcaz Review and about life in the Middle East and North Africa and whatever you want to talk about. Um, our first guest speaker is actually, let's go around and introduce everyone voice-wise. Hi, I'm the managing editor. I'm Renan Sfour, and it's wonderful to be here. Hi, I'm Hamad Rabia. I am the Arabic editor of El Marcaz Review. My name is Malou Halasa, and I'm the literary editor. Hi, I'm Lina Munzer, and I'm a senior editor at the Marcaz Review. And I'm Jordan Algravi, I'm the editor-in-chief, and the first person we're going to hear from is Malou Halasa, who is here from London. Malou, it's over to you. Great. Um, in our conversations before, you said that you wanted us to talk about our touchstones and what made, uh, made all of us or me want to write about the Middle East. And I was thinking about that. Uh, I grew up mainly in Akron, Ohio, which is in the Midwest of the United States. And when I, w- I was a voracious reader when I was younger. And uh, I can remember in high school reading all these great Southern family sagas. And I was sort of curious why um, there were no family sagas about uh, families like mine. My father was from, is from Jordan. My mother was from the Philippines. We were an immigrant family, and nobody seemed to be writing about our kind of history. And then when I was 16, um, my mother, uh, my Filipino mother, took my sister and I across the Middle East by ourselves. We started in Beirut. She rented a car in Beirut. We traveled uh, by road through Syria to Amman. Uh, we even went over the Allen Bridge to uh, Tel Aviv, and that was my first experience of the region and made quite a big impression on me. Um, the roads that we had taken and the roads that had not been traveled, I remember in, uh, in Jordan, we were on the highway and I saw a sign to Baghdad, and I thought, wow, I wish we were going there, but uh, we never made it. So those were kind of the things that I was thinking about when I, I was growing up. And then in the late 1970s, um, I was in my, um, not yet in my middle 20s, and I went, to, uh, I went to the Middle East by myself. I spent a summer there. And it was that summer that I really uh, spent with my Jordanian family in Madaba. And there were issues with the family. There were issues with the young married women, unmarried women in the family. And I can remember standing outside my father's, uh, my, my uncle's house and saying to myself, if I ever write a novel, I'm going to write about this. And that story eventually became my, my debut novel that was published in 2017 by a name press. The Mother uh, of All Pigs? Mother of All Pigs, yeah. And so these were the things that sort of kind of uh, made me and formed me and... Um, made me want to become a writer about the region. And then there was a story about your cousin, the hijacker, but we'll get to that later. Um, Okay, thank you. Let's go over to Lina over here. Uh, Lina is here from Beirut. Uh, First, I just want to say how nice it is to be here in Montpellier. It's my first time uh, to the south of France, France with palm trees. So what's not to love about that? Um, So as for what brought me to this point in my life, I don't think there's a time that I've ever, that I remember where I didn't, want to be a writer. Um, 
It's one of the first things that I am aware of that wanting to be. And I think it's because I was such a greedy reader. I love to read. And it was almost like, okay, now if I can do this thing, like whatever this magic thing that I'm absorbing from this book, if I can be the author of that, then, you know, it's almost like gaining even, even more power. And it was, it was this feeling of like, you know, reading felt like such a gift. And then it was like, okay, if I can make that gift, then maybe I can keep more of it for myself. And, um, you know, there is definitely some some kind of greed about it. How I came to be writing about the region is, uh, you know, I'm from the region. I was born and raised in Beirut uh, during the Lebanese Civil War. Um, I lived there uh, until I was 10 and a half. The entire time my parents had been trying to get a visa in order to get us out of the country and, you know, go to the West where life was better and the grass was greener and the civilization was civilizing. Um, so we ended up leaving Beirut like six months before the end of the war. Of course, my parents had no idea. It had been raging for 15 years at that point. And we went to Montreal, Canada, and I really, really hated the experience of being an immigrant. Um, I only lasted there four years. I ended up going back by myself, um, to, uh, live with my grandmother in Beirut and finish high school there. Everybody always asks me about my accent. Uh, why do you sound so North American if you only lived there for like four years? And uh, I realized at one point that like actually the answer to that is because what you're hearing is my desperate desire to assimilate. Um, you know, that that was like, I really didn't want to be different. And I think um, I, I now looking back, I think it's I really didn't have the words uh, in order to express where I had come from, especially not in English. I didn't know how to describe what I had lived. Like I had grown up in a war at the same time. I had this like, you know, a, a really idyllic childhood in a lot of ways. And the war was like a backdrop to my childhood that made it feel that much more dangerous and exciting. And, you know, there were all of these mixed feelings about it. And I went to a place where all of a sudden there were, there was only one way to look at somebody like me from the place that I was from. And I felt so misrepresented again that's a very adult word but like um you know that that's what I felt at the time and I think that only strengthened my desire to be a writer which evolved from the you know just the need to uh want to create these like magical worlds like the books that I had grown up reading to wanting to really explain and like represent where I had come from in a way that felt real to my own experience which was really varied and not black and white and you know so that's a long story short <laughs> very interesting that was lena munzer our senior editor in beirut thank you and now we're going to hear from mohammed rabia who is in berlin actually he's here today but he lives in berlin from cairo yeah hi um i just came from berlin and i brought the bad weather with me so <laughs> Uh, now I run a bookstore in Berlin. I am a writer and an editor, and the Arabic editor of Al Marquez, as I just said. Um, before that, I was living in Cairo, was working as an editor in uh, two publishing houses in Cairo. Um, that started in 2013. Before that, I was a civil engineer for about um, 11 or 12 years. Um, that was something uh, totally separate from my career as a writer. 
Um, my first novel was published in 2010, uh, followed by three other novels. Um, now I'm trying to write the fifth novel, uh, but it's becoming more and more difficult with um, all the things I have to do. Um, hopefully, in the next two or three years, I, I will going, I'm going to finish it. Well, we're going to come back to that because I'm very curious how one goes from being a civil engineer to being a novelist with multiple books written. Fascinating journey. Uh, we're going to go over to Abu Dhabi. Uh, actually, Rana Asfour, a managing <laughs> editor, is here in Montpellier, right in front of me. Yeah. Um, so what is your backstory? Mine is quite interesting coming into um, the literary world because I didn't start out as um, a writer or anybody in literature. I started out wanting to become a doctor. So I was doing my pre-med students at AUB. And um, once I finished my four years of uh, med preparing for my medical uh, degree or to sit down for the medical test, um, I decided that was definitely not what I wanted to do in life, but I was stuck, so I um, graduated as a clinical dietitian and worked in a hospital for two years. Um, something happened during that time that even cemented my um, idea that I was in the wrong place. And so I'd always been, just like all the other editors, just like Malou was saying, I was a big reader um, growing up. There was never a time when I didn't have a book in my hand. And so um, I decided, you know, I think that's where my happy place was. And um, from there, I said, I will only work with, with, with books. But I didn't know how to get into it at the beginning. And then um, I, travel, I had to travel and um, staying abroad for a while. I picked up a, a book in translation for um, Tahir bin Jaloun, I remember. And it struck me that this was something that I would love to do, which was translation. And so I started translating, just for myself, bits and pieces of, of literature. But um, once I went back to Jordan, I lived in Jordan for a very short uh, time, someone said, well, why don't you run a magazine if you like reading and translating and, and doing things for literature? Um, of course, I did run a magazine, but it was a lifestyle magazine. It was uh, fashion and, and uh, what have you. But that led later on to newspaper, radio, television, and, and I've never looked back uh, since. But um, the things that I continue to love to do is translations. Um, there, is a, there is an art and a world and an investment that you put in bringing, up someone's, bringing out someone's work from one language to another. It's a huge responsibility. There's um, a lot of effort, a lot of uh, trust that goes on in there because you know, you're taking somebody's words and, and bringing them out in a different form, but keeping context, keeping what they want to say uh, as well. So um, between that and book reviews and, and then um, you know, editing from time to time, this has been, coming to TMR feels like finally the universe has, has aligned, the stars in the universe have aligned. So everything I've done, everything I've read, everything I've ever written, edited, translated has brought me to this moment. And I'm very proud to work with this team. And um, it's, let's see, there's, you know, from here, the sky's the limit. So let's see what we can all do together. Um, that was great. I learned things about you that I didn't know. No? <laughs> um, you know, where you started, from where you started to where you are today is mm -hmm. just such a journey. I think my story started with my Moroccan grandparents. My paternal grandparents were Moroccan from Casablanca and Nisawita. And for economic reasons, they moved to France, um, and which is where my grandmother Hasiba had 13 children, mm -hmm. including two sets of twins, 
My father was one uh, brother of a set of twins. And after World War II, and after living in Casablanca, Lyon, and Paris, he had in mind the American dream. And so he decided he was going to be, be an immigrant. He immigrated. So my grandfather was an immigrant from Morocco to France. My father immigrated from uh, France to the U.S., met my mother, American mother, and my father worked. He wanted to be a movie star, actually. Oh. He, you know, they moved to Hollywood, and he tried to get in the pictures. He got into some pictures, and then he got into some hot water because he seduced the director's wife. The director was paranoid, followed him with a private detective. He was blacklisted. He lost his opportunity to act in movies, and then he became the manager of a toy factory, and he did all kinds of odd jobs. So long story short, I grew up uh, in Southern California, but I never felt at home there. I was, I was always running away. Mm-hmm. I ran away, I think, the first time I was four, then I was 10, then 13. Okay, tell us about the four. We're going to stop you there and say, <laughs> tell us about the, I mean, how can you run away at four years old? Well, I think probably what happened was I was sleepwalking. But the story, in a nutshell, is I, went, I woke up in the middle of the night. I went for a walk on the Hollywood Freeway. And uh, my mother got a phone call from the police station saying, we have your son here. Come and get him. And she said, no, he's upstairs sleeping. And they said, well, go and check, because we have a little boy here. He's four years old. He was walking around on the Hollywood freeway, and a, a good Samaritan drove by, picked him up, and brought him to us. Now, you need to come and get him. Mm-hmm. And so I think I must have been sleepwalking. But ever after, that was family lore. They were always talking about how I was, you know, at four years old, old I was already running away to go somewhere. I didn't know where I wanted to go. Um, it happened again later on when I was 13. Um, I used to have this world map on the wall of my bedroom when I was a kid. And I ran away. And I got caught after 200 miles, and they, the police sent me back. And um, then I decided I wanted to travel around the world when I was 13. Mm-hmm. So I wrote on a, a little index card, wanted traveling companion. Uh, I'm 13. You must have your own sleeping bag, preferably female, to come with me to Russia, India, China. I named all these countries. Uh, and I put this card up in the laundromat where my father used to do his laundry in West Hollywood. And there was a producer from CBS saw that card took it with him and gave it to the um, CBS News, and they, they made me a human interest story. They came to my house with cameras, filmed me talking about my trip around the world. I was pointing at this map, showing where I was going to go. And the, the one question I remember was, how are you going to pay for this? And I said, oh, I'll figure something out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I always, I always wanted to get away from where I was from. And um, long story short, I grew up between Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., and Paris. And uh, I, I look at it as kind of a circular journey. My grandfather left Casablanca and went to France. My father went from France to the U.S. I went across the U.S. and back, you know. So it's kind of this, this big circle. I, I feel like I'm, I'm, an, I'm an immigrant, but uh, I have <clears throat> privileged nationalities as uh, both French and American. And so I, can, I feel like I'm privileged and I can go and do whatever, you know, what I want to do. Yeah. Um, but you know, I've always been very attached to... Um, the, the Arab culture, the cultures of Iran, and uh, of just so many different interesting uh, variations on, on the theme. Uh, I've had Armenian, Kurdish friends, Middle Eastern Jewish friends, mm-hmm. and literature. And also, like all of you, I grew up uh, fascinated by books and reading yeah. uh, you know, all kinds of uh, you know, literature from science fiction to literary fiction to uh, uh, crime novels. And wound up working uh, in a cultural center in Los Angeles for years, mm-hmm. presenting uh, the arts and culture of, of the whole region. Yeah. So here we are, <clears throat> yes. uh, many, many years later, all of us working together. And we've all been uh, writers, and we're editors, and we're travelers. 
Um, actually, I want to go back to Muhammad real quick because you said you were a civil engineer. You're now a novelist and a bookstore owner. In 2013, I realized that I'm not taking good care of my work as a civil engineer. Uh, usually, it's very dangerous job. You have to take care of every detail in the um, the building um, during uh, you know um, uh, all the uh, steps to um, you know construct the uh, columns, uh, slabs, uh, foundations. But in 2013, I felt like I'm losing it. I'm not uh, that good engineer anymore. Um, in the same time, a couple of friends were opening uh, a branch of El Tanwir uh, publishing house, originally from Beirut, and they were opening another branch in Cairo. And I thought, okay, let's try doing this. Let's try to uh, edit some books. Um, I, di I didn't have any experience about this, and I told the, um, the manager, his name is Hassan Yeri, that I want to try this, and he told me, okay, let's try. Uh, you have to be very patient because it takes a lot of time to uh, learn how to do this. Um, you have to, uh, you know, it doesn't, uh, does it, I won't pay you that much, but... So how were you surviving? You were making a living as a civil engineer. Then you say, well, now I'm going to go into editing and writing and publishing. And did you, ha you didn't have a family yet at that point. I had. I already had a family. Yeah. So I don't understand where the money was coming from. Uh, I, got, I got paid, but not like uh, my income as a civil engineer. Well, didn't that uh, d deter you? Didn't you think, wait a minute, I'm going to go from making this much money, a lot of flus here and no flus here? Um, <laughs> Actually, I didn't think about this. I'm thinking about it now. <laughs> but at least, um, you know, I got rid of my anxiety about the work, about being an engineer. And um, yeah, it was much simpler uh, job to do. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, if there is a typo in the book. So no one's going to die. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, where if you don't design it correctly, exactly. the house falls down. Yeah. Yeah. And that's probably why then I left my... Uh, it's a good thing I left medicine behind then, because one simple mistake would have... Who, how many people you might have killed. Exactly. Yes, you could have caused exactly. a life. It's so much goodness. easier to just write them dead in the books. <laughs> By the way, to the audience, if you think becoming a writer is glamorous and you're going to make lots of money... Get it. No, this no, is not about that. <laughs> yes. It hardly, barely pays the bills. Although I do have to say that when you write in English, there's a much higher, uh, you know, like there's a lot more opportunities to be more fairly paid than if you write in Arabic, um, which is just kind of the sad nature of the way that the business works. So I do write in English and, um, you know, I, it's, I've always had to have a second job in order to be able to finance my writing. So, um, so what I was doing, I was teaching for a while and then I realized that I really dislike teaching. Um, and then I became a translator. So I was translating from Arabic into English and doing a lot of uh, what I call garbage work, garbage translations, um, you know, because the literary stuff, I would do it and I loved it, but it also didn't pay that well. So then, you know, I would do things like... Uh, you know, translating, I don't know, like catalogs, uh, translating uh, NGO reports. Uh, once I translated 
you, you end up learning all kinds of like weird things and you have to like look up terminology. Uh, once I translated this uh, manual that was written by a former brigadier general in the Lebanese army about corruption in the security forces by like some anti-corruption NGO is like a hundred page report. I learned so much about the way that the security forces work in the country. Um, yeah. So, um, it's always been a thing of like, I've always thought about it as like, I need to earn enough money to buy back some of my own time from myself so that I can use it the way I see fit. And in a lot of ways, working at TMR is like the perfect landing spot because there's so much respect for our own work. And I think all of us are, you know, all of us are writers, all of us have our own writing projects that we're working on. And it's like a fundamental part of our work that, you know, it's, it's actually factored into our time that we should have time for our own work and that this is something that's very important. So I really appreciate that, you know, like besides all of the wonderful things about working here is, you know, is that specific thing where you feel like you know, your work is celebrated and it's, and it's fit into your job in a way that feels really nice. And I love that. I think that for a long time writing about Arab culture, and I started writing about Arab culture in the 1990s. Um, and what I was doing is I was trying to look at the region through the prism of culture, not just politics and history. And in those early days, um, that's not really how a lot of the analysis of the region was going. And that um, for me, uh, culture, literature, music, um, art, these were, th this is a way that people, th this, these were places where people could speak for themselves. And I felt that was important um, for the region and for the voices in the region because there were always seemed in the West a lot of people who wanted to speak for them. So, um, trying to write about the Middle East in the 1990s, that was sort of like an odd thing to be doing. And So did oh, you meet with a lot of resistance? Was it difficult to, to get, it get was editors very, interested? It was very difficult to get editors interested in stories that weren't political stories, that weren't about like the anniversary of Sabra and Shatila, or, you know, that, that it always had to be pegged to a current affairs or news um, occurrence. And um, I felt that there were many people, there, were a lot, there was a lot of academic writing on the region, but not a lot of, of people speaking about the work that they were doing in the region. And um, I went to Beirut in 2000 to launch a book that I had, one of the first anthologies I had um, edited called Creating Spaces of Freedom, Culture, and Defiance. And I was meeting all these incredible people in Beirut that had these fantastic stories to tell. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. Like, while, while I was thinking about making literary magazines in Akron, Ohio, these people were drawing cartoons in their garages because they couldn't come out because of the Civil War. So really what we want to do is to do a book that um, people there can tell me the stories that they would want to put in the book. And I wouldn't be like one of the, uh, I wouldn't be a, uh, a colonial editor coming to the region and saying, oh, I know what you should write about, or oh, I know what you should do. And that was one of my first anthologies, Transit Beirut, um, New Writing and Images, where I let the people of a city tell me their stories and write their stories and put them together in an anthology. And I think that it was, it was really like trying to write about culture, 
write about literature, make a space for other people to tell their stories that really informed the way that I wanted to interact and write about the Middle East. Well, it's, it's very interesting what you were saying, Malou, because um, things have changed. And I think um, we see that with TMR writing as well and concentrating on writing in the Middle East, where you know, you've got the emerging writers now, there's more interest in literature, people are paying and, and looking for uh, pieces to be translated into, uh, into English. And I think two things probably contributed to this, which I think helped help bring that interest back, is social media, which sounds very surprising, but social media did. It gave exposure to a lot of people who took matters into their own hands. And like you said, they were doing the narrative that they wanted to say and talk about themselves in their own way. And the other one was, was um, the uh, uprisings of 2011. And I think the uprisings of 2011, despite the uh, outcomes of those uh, uprisings, but they created a generation that finally had had enough of being um, you know, silenced. And I think great literature has come and has evolved from 2011 and probably after 2013 as well, especially from Iraq and, and those regions. And I think that's what TMR uh, concentrates on. It concentrates on bringing these emerging voices and offering a platform uh, for them to be uh, visible. Malu, you edited a book, Serious Speaks. Do you think that the, 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 that experience produced uh, important text and, and writers that we needed to hear from? Not only writers, I think that that book uh, provided a platform for the art that was being disseminated all over the internet. I mean, because of the um, dictatorship, the, 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 you know, the, the Assad family dictatorship in Syria, there wasn't a tradition of political posters. And suddenly in 2011, there were all there were all these new political political posters, imagery, graffiti, photography that had not been seen before, and then that was really um, that was one thing that the book did. It documented this this outpouring of creative expression from literature to prison literature to art, and I think that that's also important. Mm -hmm. I think another thing is not only 2011 is to go to 9/11. 9/11. Yes, if there were a lot of negative ramifications of 9/11. There were a lot of invasions that shouldn't have happened. A lot of bombing in the region that shouldn't have gone on. A lot of knee-jerk reactions from the Americans that didn't help anybody and still hasn't helped anybody until today. But what 9/11 did was that it was a signal to I think many people that. The, the way that the region was being treated geopolitically wasn't working, and that actually people in the West started looking for other voices. They wanted to know these people in a different way. They didn't want to think of them always as terrorists or members of al-Qaeda. And I think that that is, is a, an important turning point where it wasn't just that the region was talking to the region. The region suddenly was talking to the rest of the world. And I mean, those voices, some would say now during the Gaza war, those voices really didn't get through. But there is a generation in America that is uh, you know, um, demonstrating against Israel and, and what's happening in Gaza now. And I think that that's important that culture has also been part of this growth of regional voices and, and people explaining their lives themselves without a mediator in, in between. I agree very much with what you said. I just feel like, you know, 
especially now because of the the Gaza war, or I should say like the assault on Gaza, it's, you know, you realize it's like the West is most interested in us when we're dying, mm -hmm. you know, all the time. That's it. It's like when we're dying is when they want to hear about us and they want to hear the stories of our dying, but they want them to be like very depoliticized, you know? Um, and I, I find that really, uh, I find that really troubling. I mean, for me, it's, it's like, it, I, I look at the irony of it. It's like I, my career took a great leap forward because I, I mean, for several reasons, but like, because I was in Beirut during this very tumultuous time, you had an uprising in 2019, then you had a severe economic collapse taking place while COVID was happening. You had a massive, uh, the port blast in August, 2020, which was like the largest non-nuclear explosion in the world. And then, of course, again, and the economic crisis deepening and everything getting worse and worse at the time. So I ended up writing for the New York Times uh, about, you know, like several uh, op-eds throughout that period about what was happening. And it was, they were constantly being the articles in all of these subtle ways, like very depoliticized. You know, um, if I wrote about the economic crisis, then... You know, it it was it was never like the framing was always slightly changed. So it wasn't like the banks that were responsible for it. It was almost like, you know, and I really found like that experience really taught me about the ways where even when you are trying to tell a story in a particular way, you have all of these editors that come and they sort of trim this edge off and trim that edge off and this and don't, you know, and fundamentally what you end up with, I realized is like this reinforcing this idea that like bad things just happen to the Middle East, right? Like that there's no real um, protagonists. There's no uh, very deliberate concerted efforts to create these situations, you know, whether they are like economic or like Western powers or stuff, just like terrible things happen, you know? And, but that's why I think books like yours and what you said about Transit Beirut is so important because it's like, what, what stories do you want to tell, you know, about art and culture and that? So I do think like, you know, I, I think that it's like a sort of, uh, in Arabic, we say, which is like a double-edged sword, right? Of course, it's the same expression in English. Um, but yeah, it's a double-edged sword in that, you know, th there is this clamor to hear more stories, but that clamor comes out of this, almost like this fascinating, like I was just reading now on Twitter, um, like just scrolling the news obsessively as I've been doing, you know, since October 7th, that um, there's like this British doctor who was working in Gaza and he said the Western media, they wanted to hear all the descriptions of the horrific injuries that we have seen, the worst stuff, and they, but they never wanted to hear about the perpetrator. They didn't want us repeating who the perpetrator was. I think that's true, especially for mainstream Western media about the decline depoliticizing of, of what's actually going on there and making it so it's like, you're right, bad things happen to the Middle East. But I also think there are more platforms for this new generation, for example, Palestinian poets that are, are being published and are widely available. I think there are more um, avenues in social media where the type of writing, the type of analysis that you want to see, it's there. And I think that if you went back 15, 20 years ago when I was starting out, those avenues weren't even open. And so it's, it, 
things are bad. Like, like let's not pretend that things are suddenly good. But it's, things have been subtly changing, and that's something that I hold on to, that I try to be optimistic about even when it's really, really dark. Because I remember what Saeed said, or what Saeed said, is that this stuff is out there. It, it's on the periphery, but you can find it. And I think that that's very important. That, and I think that with TMR, we're not on the periphery, actually. We are part of a group, or there's a group of like-minded people, not just editors, but there are readers, uh, artists, uh, bloggers. Critics, uh, writers. Writers. And you know, we've, we've had, um, over the past year, a huge growth in our readership. Uh, we've seen, a, I don't know the, what the percentages are, like 30, 40% more readers than last year. We've had a, millions of impressions. So there, we know that there are a lot of people who are searching for Sometimes they don't know what they're looking for, but they want to know more. They want to understand, you know, who are the Gazans? Who, what is, what is this all about? You know, they want to find out more information, and they're, they're searching, and, and people are finding us. Um, and so, I, I feel like we have our work cut out for us for quite a while. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. what do you, what do you think? Absolutely, absolutely, and I look forward to it. I mean, there are, there are voices there, and like, like Malu was saying, the venues are there, and we are not on the periphery. We're, we're right there. Uh, bringing out those voices in the and center th- of the world. In, in the fact. center of the—that's exactly. Well, the, I should say to our audience, this is our new tagline: yes. <clears throat> literature and arts from the center of the world. Exactly. Because the idea is that the the, the roots of civilization are mm-hmm. in Mesopotamia and mm-hmm. so forth. Yes. Yep. Yep. Not that we're pretentious; that we're the center of everything. <laughs> <laughs> A silence is agreeing. <laughs> so I don't know. I think we should uh, wrap up because we yeah. don't want to make this for, you know too long. But if okay. anybody has any last words, I'm, I'm taking last words. I think we should add on. A, we should end on a fun note, which is I'm gonna. I think each of us should go around and tell everybody what our favorite breakfast is. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna start. I don't usually eat breakfast, but if I do, I want to have authentic feta cheese with za'atar and olive oil. Okay, I'm, I also don't usually have breakfast, but if I was going to have breakfast, I'd probably have actually falafel, I think. Falafel is my falafel favorite. Falafel for breakfast. Falafel for breakfast. That's what we do in Jordan, so a, a good falafel sandwich. Yep. For me, uh, that's a, that would be a very strange answer, but I prefer the English breakfast without the beans. <laughs> <laughs> and me, my favorite breakfast is, is za'atar, and oil, and bread, and olives, and... Uh, my grandmother's, uh, my Arab grandmother's tomato, onion, salad. Mm, mm, mm. My ideal breakfast, mm. which I actually try to have uh, at least three times a week, is scrambled eggs, a nice fresh tomato cut up with salt on it, and like a big dollop of labne. Oh, oh since you mentioned tomato, I got to say that lately I've been eating shakshuka again. Which, uh, you know, for those who don't know, that's yeah. a typical dish in Tunisia and the Palestinians eat it. I think maybe you might even find it in Egypt. It's a tomatoes, sauteed tomatoes and garlic with cumin and eggs. Mm-hmm. Love that. Oh, by the way, visiting Egypt, full. I like to eat full, full. with well, the garlic, the lemon, the yeah. parsley. Yeah, of course. But we have this every day, so yeah. it's not my favorite anymore. <laughs> <laughs>
He's <laughs> anti-beans, if you remember his Well, answer. a typical Jordanian Friday breakfast would be full falafel and hummus. And, and probably That's a lot of gas. That's why it's on Friday. <laughs> this has been another episode of Radio Taboulet, fresh content and conversations from or about the Middle East and North Africa and our cultures in diaspora. Produced by the Marcaz Review, online at themarcaz.org. Support arts and freedom of expression as a member subscriber of TMR.